Martínez. Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Had the privilege this past weekend of going with the elders on the annual session retreat, and just wanted to give you a very brief update. Um, just a good time with the guys. We, we, we spent some time just sharing very deeply, personally, uh, together uh, with accountability. So there were very uh, targeted questions, such as, do you snore? <laughs> because those who snore get to live in the basement uh, for the rest of the weekend. Uh, here, just wanted to give you a, a, a picture. You can see us suffering for the kingdom <laughs> at Minato's Buffet. Really did not need breakfast this morning. I'm not sure that I'll eat until tomorrow either. Um, we, we did tackle thorny theological questions there, such as, at what point does eating cross the line into gluttony? We decided to determine that experientially. Um, seriously, I, I, I am so thankful to get to serve alongside these brothers. They are passionate. They're passionate for Christ. They're passionate for you. They are giving of themselves over and over and over, sacrificing for your sake. Uh, we did have a terrific time in worship, great times of prayer, prayer for each other, but prayer also for the congregation. Talked about all the different people, groups within the congregation, and just trying to get a sense of, okay, Lord, given our mission, given where you've taken us up to this point, what do you have for us next? Why am I telling you this? They love you. That's what I'm trying to say to you. And their families love you, sacrificing, giving them up, giving up their time. Please love them back. Find one of these guys today and give them a hug. Okay, it'll be a little uncomfortable. Do that. They need to know that you love them and that you care about them. And then find their wives and find their children and give them a hug because they've given up just as much for your sake. We are looking at the kingdom of God this summer. And we're looking at it because of how central it is to Jesus' life and ministry. It was what he called people into, and it's what he then called those people to proclaim to the people around them, to the world around them, that God has not abandoned this runaway planet. But God is exerting his kingship over this planet, calling people into a relationship with himself. And as we've been seeing, Jesus thought that this kingdom, kingdom was so valuable, he gave up everything that he had in order to embrace it with joy. And that if we will just see how excellent this kingdom is, then we also will give up everything with joy so that we can have it. And yet at the same time that we realize that this is just beyond our imagining what we're being offered, recognize that in this world there are things that can rob you of joy, things that can take away your interest in this kingdom of God. And we saw last week that wealth is one of those things, that wealth will promise to give you a better life than Jesus will. And if you believe that, you will not embrace the kingdom with joy. Instead, what will you do? Just like the rich young man, you'll walk away. But you will not walk away with joy. You'll walk away sad. Saw that. He gave us a picture of what an outright rejection of the kingdom looks like. There's other times, however, when you don't have joy, but it's more quiet. It's a little bit more under the radar. And in those cases, it's not this outright rejection of the treasure. Instead, it's a blindness to even knowing what it is that you treasure. And so youth can think that you are following Christ. You can think that you are with his people, and all you're doing is really living parallel lives with each other because you're really apathetic toward Jesus. You're not joyful toward him. And it's not that there is some kind of crisis moment in your life. It's just that he was never all that special to begin with. You hear that in the parable that Luke just read in Matthew 25. 
And I want to start by just acknowledging up front, I have struggled with this parable over the years. And the reason that I struggle is because I don't know anything about wedding ceremonies back in the Israelite world in the first century. And so I can tend to get distracted when I read this parable. And I start asking questions like, why does your lamp have to be lit in order for you to go along? Why, why, why are 10 lamps necessary? Why can't you just have five? Or who is it that sells oil in the middle of the night that you can actually go to? And doesn't it really seem like it's kind of the groom's fault? I mean, he's the one who's late. So why are the young ladies paying for that? Now, thankfully, I'm not the only one who struggles. The commentaries point out that th these are hard questions to answer because there was nobody at that time writing down, this is what Jewish weddings are like in the first century. And so if you want to understand what this wedding sort of context is, you have to go to near neighbors. You have to look at Greek weddings, Roman weddings in small town areas. And when you do that, you start to understand, oh, okay, weddings took place in stages. So initially, there's this betrothal where a man and a woman pledge themselves to be married. And then when the wedding day comes, the groom and his people would travel to the bride's home. And at that at her home, there would be various ceremonies that they would enter into, and those were somewhat unpredictable in length, for whatever reason. And it wasn't then until often at night that the whole uh, procession would journey back to the groom's home. And this was the high point, because at the groom's home is the wedding feast. And this is the sort of the big payoff. This is the thing that everybody is looking toward, the consummation in some sense of the marriage. If you are carrying one of these lamps then, you have to keep adding oil so that it doesn't flicker, it doesn't go out. And what's critical in this parable is that some of the women thought ahead and they realized that they were gonna need to bring extra oil with them. That there's this really good chance that the groom's gonna be delayed and apparently that was not unusual. And they didn't wanna run out of oil before he got there. And so you have these five women who are just absolutely locked in, zeroed in, on the groom. He is the goal. He's their treasure. And so it's a parable of, is meeting the groom uppermost in your mind? Is that future what you are orienting all of the rest of your life around? And for some of the women it was, and so they made preparations in order to meet him. The other five did not. And so what? They're, they're, they're happy enough to be there, but they're not riveted on the groom. He's not their treasure. That's the main point. Some are oriented around the groom, others are not. And if you keep that main point in view, the other pieces then start to sort themselves out. For instance, it allows you to then start thinking, okay, who are these five foolish women? What, what, what do we know about them? Well, you realize they're really nice people. They got invited to the wedding. You invite people to the wedding, what? That you actually want to have be there. They're invited, they responded positively. Obviously, they wanted to go. They fit in with the other women. You can't really tell a difference all day long between who's the five foolish and who are the five wise. They're all blended together. Apparently, they've got interest in the groom. They know he's special. They call him Lord, and they've spent all day waiting for him. In other words, these are really nice people. You would like them. These are the people that you would invite to your own wedding. The only difference between these two groups is that one group has an extra jar of oil and the other doesn't. That's it. It's the only difference between them. So on the surface, they look very similar to each other, lots in common with one discrepancy. And yet, as Jesus unpacks the parable, you realize that that discrepancy 
helps you understand there is a fundamental difference between these two groups. For all the surface similarities, they are very, very different from each other. Only the five foolish ones don't know it. They might notice that those other ladies have something that they don't, but it doesn't strike them as all that important, and it's certainly not important enough to do anything about. And so they don't look at those jars of oil and go, oh my goodness, I, how could I forget that? I knew I was forgetting something. I have to run out now and get one of those. Instead, if they even notice them, it doesn't matter. It's not that big a deal. They're missing something essential. They don't know it. But it does become obvious later on. Something happens that forces them to face how unprepared they are. And it's this voice in verse 6 that cries out, here's the bridegroom. And that's a moment of revelation for them. It's a moment that tells them they're not ready. Their lamps are going out. And you can imagine what's going through their minds. Wait, <laughs> I've spent all day long getting ready. I got dressed. I came here. I've been waiting all day. And now I'm not ready. All of what I did was useless if the goal was to meet the groom. All pointless. And they also discover in that moment that nobody else can prepare for you. They try to, try to borrow oil, but it's not possible. And they realize you have to have your own oil. You have to be ready. It's the point that Jesus is driving toward. I want to understand then, 2,000 years later, okay, <laughs> what then does it mean to look like we're ready, and what does it mean to actually be ready? What's the difference between being prepared and being unprepared? How do we go about waiting for the groom? What is the parable saying? It's saying that being prepared means that what you are doing in the present moments of life is oriented toward this upcoming future event, that because that event is so important to you, it now dictates what you are doing in this, in the now. There's a unity to your life. There's a theme that says, because that's what I want, everything in my life is focused there. Everything in my life is funneled in that direction. What's another way of thinking about your life, an alternative way? You break your life up into a bunch of different compartments. You say, okay, here's the Jesus compartment in my life. Here's the bridegroom compartment in my life. And when I'm in the Jesus sector, I do Jesus kind of things. But then I've got all these other sectors of life as well. I have the family sector. I have the work sector. I have the education sector. I have the sports sector. I have the entertainment sector. And in these sectors, I, I don't really think about Jesus because he's just what? He's irrelevant to all of those. That's not being prepared for the bridegroom. That's not thinking down the road, thinking, okay, this is my goal. Therefore, I am always thinking about what I'm doing in the moment. It doesn't matter what dimension of my life. I'm gearing it toward that future moment. That future shapes my present. Let's get away from lamps for a moment. Maybe we can make this a little clearer. I've been listening to lectures on my phone when I'm exercising lately. I, I have one of them that will not run in the background. It's very irritating, so this, the screen has to be on the entire time, and it just chews up my battery. I really want to listen to lectures, so I just let it do that. About a week ago, I glanced down at my phone when I'm all done, and I'm now in the 30% range left of the battery. And yet I know that later on that day, I have several back-to-back -back phone calls that are coming in. Now, let's say at that moment you're watching me. I look down at the phone, I say, oh, 30%. Eh, whatever, it'll all work out and I go on and do other things. I go eat breakfast and get on, along, on with the day. What would you conclude in that moment? 
would you think that those phone calls that are coming are important to me or unimportant? And you realize, well, obviously they're unimportant. There isn't anything that you've done to get ready for those calls coming in. My phone might die in the middle of those calls. I just don't care. I'm apathetic. I'm looking at the charge on the battery. I'm thinking, okay, that's happening, but I'm not doing anything different. I'm not plugging the phone in. Or to use the parables metaphor. I haven't gone out and got that extra jar of oil to make sure that I can get from the bride's home to the groom's home, which means what? I'm going to miss the procession. But even more importantly, I'm going to miss the groom. See, without the groom, there is no need for a procession. It's not about a procession. It's about a person. What's really important is, do I have enough oil in order to make sure I'm there for the person? Think about phone calls again. Is the biggest problem me, me saying, I don't care about phone calls. I'm apathetic about phone calls as an event. Think, no, it's more personal than that. What I'm really saying is, I don't care about the person for whom I'm going to connect with the call. Not apathetic about phone calls, I'm apathetic about the person. In other words, you can see internally what I think about that other person by watching what I do with my phone. That external expression, what I do or do not do, tells you about how I value that other person. You can get a glimpse of what I'm like in that moment. The real problem in the parable is the foolish ladies are apathetic about the groom. They're not longing to be with him. And so they don't do what they need to in order to meet him. Being, shaped, being with him was not what shaped their day. So you think, well, <laughs> why are they there then? Well, if they're not there for him, they're there for the party. They like the idea of the wedding feast. That sounds like a great idea. That's something that they're all in for. They will spend all day long getting ready for that, but him, eh. He doesn't mean that much, not enough to change their day. And so you see here that first and foremost, Jesus is targeting an internal issue. You can see it externally. It expresses itself externally. Do you have that extra jar of oil or not? But the problem is much deeper than how much oil are you carrying. The problem is you didn't care enough to make sure that you had enough. The problem is apathy. Apathy toward the groom, apathy toward Jesus. Now, what's really scary is that Jesus does not tell this story to the Pharisees. He doesn't tell this story to the crowd. Instead, if you go back and you look, this is part of a longer conversation that Jesus started in chapter 24 with his disciples. It's actually the third of five parables. He tells five parables in a row. Four of them are about being ready for when Jesus comes. And he's telling it to the disciples, which probably means it's more than just the 12 apostles. But it's people who look like they have some interest in him. People who are not antagonistic, people who blended in, they look just like any of the other disciples. And yet Jesus is aware that some of those people out there that look just like everybody else really are not interested in him. They wanted what he offered. They're missing that what he's most offering is actually a relationship with himself. He's offering himself. And that's how you have to understand the groom's words at the end of the parable. They're not cruel. The women without oil knock on the door after it's closed. They beg the groom to let him in, and he says, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. And you realize in that moment he's not talking to people who all their lives have longed to be with him. 
He's not talking to people that in that moment who, who just have a passion for him. He's talking to people who have not, who, who, who have not bent their lives around him, who in a real sense of the word, don't know him and don't know what he's worth and don't know that he's worth being with. And so after a lifetime of not caring to know him, they're shut out at the end. Or you could say it a different way. They spent a lifetime excluding themselves from the feast. And the groom's words do what? They simply make that lifetime trajectory official. He lets them have what they wanted. Now, I'm very aware this is a heavy word. Jesus intended it to be a heavy word. And that means that one wrong way to hear the parable is to try to get out from under it. One wrong way to hear the parable is to say, okay, I get it. Some people in other churches, you know, a thousand miles away or so, that teach incorrect things are going to have a real wake-up call one day. Okay, don't let yourself go down that road. Don't hear it that way. Jesus warned his disciples, the guys and women who are all around him, who are walking with them, him. And it's those people that he warned that some of you have a heart that isn't for me, even though you look like you fit in. And just so that you don't think that he's sort of being hyperbolic here, okay, he's, he's talking about something wild and crazy to sort of, you know, scare us all into, you know, having a, a, a moment of self-reflection. There was at least one point, one person, who was exactly like what he was talking about. One person who, in his parable, was a woman with a lamp without oil, and nobody knew it. And that person was Judas. Just one chapter over in Matthew 26, at the last Passover meal, Jesus predicts, one of you all sitting here will betray me. And all of the, the apostles respond by saying, what? Is it I, Lord? They all ask, is, is it me? I know I'm capable. Is it I? No one said, oh, I got it. I know what he was talking about. It's Judas. We've seen that all along. Everybody knows he's a lying, sneaking, backstabbing thief. <laughs> they didn't say that. They had no clue. Judas looked like every other serious disciple who had ever given everything up for Jesus, who was following him wherever he went. Judas had his lamp waiting for the groom, just didn't have any oil with it. I don't think we can take this parable seriously enough. Some of you know that I used to teach uh, at a seminary in the, the, the area, local seminary, evangelical, and I used to assign weekly papers there that asked people to interact with the material that we went over in class. So one week, I, just, I, I spent the entire class talking about, this is what Jesus does in the present. This is how active he is in your life. What is faith? Faith is believing that he really is that active, that he didn't just die and, and rise from the, the dead and then disappear, but he's here right now and he's embracing us. And I remember a week later reading a young man's paper who was responding to that. And as I'm reading the paper, I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> If I'm reading this correctly, this guy says he just became a Christian. That he finally understands what faith is. And he understands that a week ago he didn't have faith and that he does now. You need to understand, this is not a seminar you just sort of walk in to off the street. You have to write out testimony. Here's my experience of, of, of the Lord. You have to have your pastor uh, write a letter that, that refers you. You have to have another reference there. 
This guy met all of those tests. Everyone, including himself, believed he was a Christian. And after reading his paper, it seems really obvious. He had been a bridesmaid waiting with others to meet the groom, fitting in so that you could not tell any difference between him and anyone else. Just didn't have any oil. Jesus told this parable to his disciples, which means he meant it for us. He meant it for you, he meant it for me, he meant it for Renewal Mainline outside of Philadelphia. It's supposed to drive us to ask the question, am I ready? Am I ready to meet the groom when he comes back? Am I wrapping all of my life around this future event where I'm going to see him face to face? It's a really important question. They think, okay, how, how do I know the answer? How do I know if I really am or if I just think I am and, and maybe I'm fooling myself? How do I know that? Okay, here's the place that's tailor-made for me to give you a long list of things to do. Okay, make sure that you spend half an hour every day in prayer. Here's how many uh, Bible, chapters of the Bible you ought to be reading. You need to tithe and make sure that you're praying for world events. I could go on. There's a really long list of those things. And in some sense, you would like me to give you that list. Because if I gave you that list, you could step back from that list dispassionately go, okay, I, I do that one, that one, that one, that one. You know what? I do enough of those. Whew, must not be talking about me. I can ignore this parable. And if you looked at that list and you thought, oh, I, I don't do enough of those, then you'd go, what? Okay, now it's time to step up my game and do enough of those so that, what? So that this parable does not apply to me. That would be very easy to do. And it would completely undermine the parable. If that was Jesus' point, he could have done that. He could have said, therefore, to be prepared, you have to get up early like I do and go to a lonely place to pray. You need to memorize the scripture like I have. You need to read your Bible through in a year. He didn't say that. He said something harder. Verse 13. Keep watch. Do you see how he's going internal? He's saying, here's your attitude. This is your focus. This is what's got to be on the inside of you. Keep watch. Make sure your, line, your life is lined up, ready to meet me. It's to stir you up. It's to stir me up and to have us asking, am I keeping watch? Do I really want Jesus more than I want anything else in life? Are you talking to me, Lord? Let me give you a way to answer that question. Years ago, I heard John Piper preach in a sermon. And he said, if after you died... You had everything that you've ever wanted, everything that you could ever possibly want, but you didn't have Jesus. Would you think that was heaven? If you had everything that you've ever wanted, but you didn't have Jesus, would that be enough for you? What is he doing there? He's asking the question, what's the nature of the heaven that you are aiming at? What makes heaven heavenly? Does it have to have Jesus in it? to make it heavenly? Or would you be perfectly satisfied as long as it was filled up with all the other things that you're hoping for? Now, I heard this at a time where I was becoming much more aware of how awful, often I sin, how awful my sin is. And I was really looking forward to this day coming when I'm not going to sin anymore. And it was something that I would talk about with my friends. I, I, I so cannot wait until I am completely free from sin. Sounds like a good thing to long for in its right place. 
Piper's question stopped me cold. I had to think, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, if I was sinless, if I never did anything wrong ever again, would that be enough for me? Would that be heaven? And in that moment, I felt very convicted because I thought, maybe, maybe that would be enough. Maybe I would be satisfied. If I had that, I'm not sure that I would miss Jesus. Now, what do you do when you have that kind of a wake-up call? Here's what you do not do. You don't sit down and analyze and say, am I a bridesmaid with or without oil? Okay, don't do that. What do you do? Make it personal. That's the whole point. The whole point of the parable is aim at the person. So what do you do immediately? You run to the groom. And you say, Jesus, I, I don't think I have enough love for you. And that upsets me. I'm not, I, I, I don't want to be okay with being apathetic. I want more, like the songs that we were singing this morning. Lord, give me your spirit. Bring up inside of me that which I do not have. Birth life. Renew life. Give me what I don't have. In other words, when Jesus says, keep watch, it's a call to action. But it's a call to internal action. You need to do something, but you have to have that desire to meet the groom. See, that's what verse 6 says. Here is the bridegroom. That's the voice that cries out. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to the party. No, come out to meet him. In other words, Jesus is saying this is what wise people are like. They're ready to meet me. They've spent their whole life looking forward to being with me. They want to be with me. They're interested in me. And I hear that, and, and, and I do feel a certain sense of helplessness. I feel the weight of that, that I should be ready, that I should be interested. But what do you do if you're not? How do you make yourself be interested in something if you're not interested in it? I want to help us understand just how hard this is. Let me give you a picture here. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. I would recommend this if you find it at all engaging. It's a long allegory of how our hearts move one step at a time, either away from God or toward God. And he unpacks in that, in a fictional kind of way, how that movement then impacts all of the rest of our lives. So in his book, there's this group of people who have been choosing hell all of their lives, and yet they have an opportunity before they're judged to set foot on the outskirts of heaven. And they're just blown away by what they encounter there. It is more real and more solid and more colorful, more beautiful than anything that they've ever imagined that life could be. And Lewis sets up a dialogue at this one point between two individuals, one he calls the ghost, one he calls the spirit. The ghost is a human being who was on earth. He was a famous painter, but he doesn't have any real substantial weightiness in, in this world. He's not part of the new creation. This is part of the new creation. And so he's not even heavy enough to bend blades of grass. When Lewis talks about the spirit, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a human being who has become part of the new creation, who is just as real and just as substantial as everything all around him. So here's a small portion of their dialogue. God, said the ghost, look, glancing around the landscape. God what? asked the spirit. What do you mean, God what? asked the ghost. In our grammar, God is a noun. Oh, I, I see. I, I only meant by gum or something of the sort. I, I meant, well, all this. It's, it, it, 
I, I should like to paint this. I shouldn't bother about that just at present if I were you. Look here, isn't one going to be allowed to go on painting? Looking comes first. But I've had my look. I've seen just what I want to do. God, I wish I'd thought of bringing my things with me. Spirit shook his head, scattering light from his hair as he did so. That sort of thing's no good here, he said. What do you mean, said the ghost? When you painted on earth, at least in your earlier days, it was because you caught glimpses of heaven in the earthly landscape. The success of your painting was that it enabled others to see the glimpses too. But here, you're having the thing itself. It is from here that the messages came. There's no good telling us about this country, for we see it already. In fact, we see it better than you do. Then there's never going to be any point in painting here? I don't say that. When you've grown into a person, it's all right, we all had to do it, there'll be some things which you'll see better than anyone else. One of the things you'll want to do will be to tell us all about them, but not yet. At present, your business is to see. Come and see. He is endless. Come and feed. There was a little pause. That will be delightful, said the ghost presently in a rather dull voice. Do you see the problem? The ghost sees heaven. It's all around him. He, he can't see anything but heaven. But he has absolutely no interest in the one from whom all these things come. He's more interested in what he can do with heaven than he's interested in the God who makes it heaven by his presence. And so the question is, how do you get interested in something if you're not? It's very hard. You can be invited and, and you think, well, that'll be delightful. And, and your, your tone gives away, no, you don't think so. How do you get excited about seeing him who is endless if you've been more excited by seeing something else? The answer, just like all the, an the, the, question, the answer to all the questions in the Christian life, is you have to look at Jesus again. And there are four different ways that you can look at him through this parable. Number one, you realize that there's a reason he's on earth telling wedding parables. It's because he's telling his own story in ways that'll make sense to us. He's the groom who leaves his father's house. He leaves heaven to go where? To where his bride lives. And he does that, to, he comes to this earth for one purpose, and that is to join himself to her forever. He's the groom who wants his people so badly that he says, I came to earth to marry you. You have to hear that when you read this parable. I came to earth to marry you. You're the reason that I left heaven. I can't stand the thought of eternity without you. And the closest way of saying that is to use the way that you understand this and to say, I want to bind myself to you. I want to give you everything that I am. I want you to give me everything that you are. You think, have you ever had somebody pursue you with that level of intensity? And I know that you haven't. He crossed heaven and earth to come find you and to pursue you. He spanned the, the infinity between divinity and humanity because he wants you. You've never experienced that kind of love. Get a drop of that. There'll be more joy pouring out of you than you know what to do with. See him. Don't let him get away. Or secondly, think about how he hasn't brought final judgment yet. It's amazing. You think again about what he's doing. He's on the way 
to the wedding feast with his bride because that's what he's longing for. That's his passion. He wants to go to the feast, but he didn't do that yet. He delays first. Why? Because there's still time for you to get interested if you haven't been interested yet. The fact that there's still time tells you something about him. What is he doing? He's holding his desires back, holding them in check for what? For your benefit. Did you ever see somebody do that? Hold themselves back and what they want back, what they're longing for back, so that you actually had something better? Look at that and find if your heart doesn't start to warm a little bit more to him. Or notice what he's doing by telling this parable. He's talking to people, some of whom have no real interest in him. Why is he doing that? It's a warning. So that what? He's saying there's a door that's closing at some point. You do not want to be on the wrong side of this door. Why is he telling them that? So that they'll be on the right side. He's telling this parable, not because he needs to for himself. He's telling it to us for us. And then lastly, Jesus does not give this warning and say, well, it's all up to you now. Good luck with that. Hope you can really do something with that. I'm going to keep on walking to the feast. Instead, he walks first to the cross. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This one who crossed infinities for love was rejected. He was shut out. He ended up on the wrong side of the door. He hears the father say, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. He was forsaken. You think, why? That doesn't make any sense. He is the only human being who has lived his entire life with that future in mind, saying, I want to be where the Father is. I want to be in a world that is just full and overflowing with who this God is. Lived his entire life, every thought, every feeling, every action, every word lined up to be with God. He earned being with God. And he ends up rejected because he takes our place. See, as much as your heart and my heart may want him now, we've all rejected him at times. There isn't one of us who can say, I have 100% responded to his love all the time. We've not fully wanted him as much as he's wanted us. And for that, we deserve to be shut out. We deserve to be on the other side of the door and to get what we asked for. We deserve an eternity without him. And yet he wanted you so badly that on the cross he made a trade with you. He is willing to hear the rejection from the Father that you deserve, and he's willing to give you the acceptance that he earned so that you have a seat at the table. If you find your heart struggling this morning, cold, but you want more, look at Christ. Look at him again. Look at his love for you. Look at his willingness to hold off feasting so that you can be there. Look at him warn you so that you don't miss out. And then look at what he's willing to pay to make sure that you have a place there. Look at him. And you start to feel your apathy melt away. You start to find, man, I want to be with him. I'm going to invite our worship team back up and give us a, a few moments to pray. Maybe you just want to talk to the Lord. Lord, there's apathy in my heart. Things that are, have been more interesting to me than you are. Maybe spend a few moments allowing the Spirit to search what's going on in your heart.